We're back with another edition of the Federalist Radio Hour. I'm Emily Jashinsky, culture editor here at The Federalist. As always, you can email the show at radio at thefederalist.com. Follow us on Twitter at FDRLST. Make sure to subscribe wherever you download your podcasts as well. Today, I'm so excited to be joined by two guests, Ryan T. Anderson and Alexander DeSanctis. They have a new book coming out in June. It's going to be called Tearing Us Apart. How Abortion Harms Everything and Solves Nothing. Ryan, of course, is the president of the Ethics and Public Policy Center. He's also the author of When Harry Became Sally. Alexandra DeSanctis is a visiting fellow at the Ethics and Public Policy Center. You probably know her writing from National Review. Welcome to both of you. Thanks for having Thanks, us. Emily. Of course. I want to start by asking um, a question sort of about the process, because this book is basically uh, set to come out around when we expect the Dobbs decision to come out. So how do you write a book over the course of the next uh, six months without knowing how that decision is going to go? So how are you sort of approaching this project with that kind of hanging in the balance? Sure. So um, I'll say a little bit and then um, Zan probably has more to add. But I mean, to a certain extent, you know, the subtitle of the book, um, How Abortion Harms Everything and Solves Nothing, um, that's going to be true no matter what the Supreme Court does in Dobbs. Um, we're hopeful that the court does the right thing, um, that the court finally admits that it got both Roe and Casey and the entire progeny of Roe wrong because there's nothing in our Constitution um, that protects lethal violence in the womb. Um, but the bulk of the book is just documenting, um, you know, case by case by case, area by area by area, how abortion has harmed everything it's touched, how it doesn't solve anything. And it's really meant to be a um, almost like a, a resource, a guide, a, a playbook for the pro-life movement after Dobbs. No matter how Dobbs is decided, win, lose, or draw, uh, the pro-life movement's not going to be over. Even if we overturn Roe and Casey, that's not the end of the pro-life movement. That's the beginning of a new stage. Um, and what motivated Alexandra and I to do this was that we couldn't think of you know one single volume that kind of documented all of the destruction of the past 50 years and assembled all of the, you know, the arguments, the stories, um, the kind of like personal lived experiences of how abortion has been so devastating to our country. And so, and so that's what we wanted to put together with this book. Yeah, Alexandra, let me ask you a question going off of what Ryan just said. How much of what you guys plan to do with this book is sort of looking back on the last 50 years and assessing the wreckage that's sort of in the wake? Yeah, I'd say the, the bulk of the book is doing that, but it's really in service of what the future of the pro-life movement is going to look like. And I think that's why it's a, it'll be an effective book and a useful book, we hope, regardless of what the court does. And while, you know, as Ryan said, we're very hopeful, and I would even say, in my case, at least optimistic, uh, that the court's going to do the right thing here. Even if it doesn't, right, we still have to keep making the case against abortion, and that'll continue being a, a case that we have to make in front of the Supreme Court for a long time if they don't do not do the right thing this summer. Uh, but we're still going to keep making the case, right? The pro-life movement's not going to just, you know, pack up and go home if we don't get the decision we want in Dobbs. Uh, but whether we do or whether we don't, we have to keep making a, a comp very comprehensive case against abortion. And I think that's why most of the book kind of looks at we were told, women were told this is going to be great for women. It hasn't been. We were told this is going to be good for our society. This is a form of freedom and equality for women. Uh, we'll all be better off. In fact, actually, we're all worse off by all these various markers that we go through in the book. And I think it's important to do that, especially looking forward to a, a post-Roe future, because that's that's the most effective pro-life case, right? We have to start by acknowledging 
and denouncing the harm of ending the lives of these millions of unborn children. But the harms go so much further than that, and they go so much deeper. And I think that's really the case the pro-life movement has to learn how to make um, once abortion can actually be made illegal. I really agree with what you both said about they're lacking a sort of uh, we lack that sort of single volume that does this. Um, And I want to ask, you probably both have different answers to this question. and Maybe you have the same, which would be interesting in and of itself. But as we do look back on the last 50 years in a culture of permissiveness and tolerance um, and endorsement of abortion, the title of the book is How It Harms Everything. What are some of the ways what is maybe for each of you? What is one of those ways that it harms everything that a lot of people, when they think maybe myopically about this issue of abortion, they don't always think of, but it is absolutely harmed by our culture of tolerance for abortion? Zandy, you want to go first or do you want me to? Sure. Yeah, no, it's a really thoughtful question. And um, the book goes chapter by chapter through these kind of big areas of our society. You know, the medical field might not be something people think about, or I think most listeners to this podcast would be more familiar with maybe the rule of law or the the, pol- the way it's harmed our politics and our democratic process. Um, but I think for me, kind of what I focus on a lot in my work, and I think one of the really strong parts of the book is when we talk about the cultural effects of permitting abortion. And obviously law and politics go hand in hand now, and they will after Roe. Uh, but there's something about living in a culture where we're meant to think not only that abortion is kind of this thing that women have to be able to fall back on if they need to, but it's actually kind of a good thing. And at least, Emily, I think as you and I have been growing up, we've witnessed our culture kind of transform on this right before our eyes from, you know, okay, maybe abortion is not the best thing ever, but we kind of have to have it to actually we should celebrate this. And if you think it's a bad thing, you're hurting women who've had an abortion, right? And I think we see the effects of that in in very many aspects of our culture and kids are growing up being taught this and just seeing this kind of message on TV and movies more and more. Uh, And I think that's really where people shape their views for people who aren't as as tuned into politics. Maybe uh, their views are shaped by the culture we live in and by what celebrities say and by, you know, what people, the way people think about Planned Parenthood, for example, and it's kind of glossy public image. These things really affect how the the average person thinks about abortion. And I think um, if we're going to win this fight, we're really going to have to take it on at that level. Ryan. Yeah, and I mean, I'll focus on the politics aspect of this because I mean, one thing that I think is underappreciated is just how much the um, the rhetoric that justified abortion coming, especially from formerly pro life Catholic Democrats, mm. uh, and we sometimes forget that you know Joe Biden, um, Ted Kennedy, uh, uh, various various others, kind of like prominent you know today uh, lefty liberal Democrats earlier in their careers, spoke out against Roe, spoke out against taxpayer funding of abortion, said they were personally pro-life. Obviously, the Mario Cuomo Notre Dame speech is something that everyone's familiar with. But that rhetoric of I'm personally opposed to abortion, but I don't want the law or public policy to reflect my deepest moral and metaphysical commitments. Now, look, some of this was just lying, right? The people weren't actually personally opposed to abortion. But that general rhetoric, I think, has really debased our politics because it, it led, it was part of a larger um, uh, movement in the mid-century, and it, but it was also a catalyst that led to the idea that the separation of church and state as institutions also mean the separation of religion from politics and the separation of morality from law. And those latter two claims are just utterly false, utterly foreign to our constitutional and political tradition. But I think they've led to a lot of the kind of, you know, bad secularization that we've seen, 
Um, and it's led to, you know, various kind of fissures within the, um, the political right um, that, you know, doesn't understand that we actually do want the law to be based upon a sound understanding of human nature, human flourishing, uh, the natural law, um, et cetera, et cetera. And then the other thing I would add to this is that the, the practical consequence is that it's left a lot of people feeling politically homeless. Um, our politics would be so much better if neither of our major political parties was absolutely devoted to a fundamental injustice. Uh, and this has led lots of people into you know, terrible political choices where, where they're like, you know, I don't actually like some of the um, uh, policies that Republicans stand for, but at least they don't favor killing babies. And if, and if we at least had two pro-life parties, then we could have debates about what's the best economic policy, what's the best foreign policy. People wouldn't feel um, uh, kind of um, captive on the abortion issue. Yeah, that's a really, really interesting point. And it, it just about the politics of it, a fascinating point. And I want to ask this question to both of you. I think uh, I asked this to Kristen Hawkins on the podcast last week, um, right ahead of the March for Life, about whether uh, the conservative movement, let alone the country at large, is sort of ready for uh, Roe to be overturned if that's what happened, if that's what happens. And by ready, I mean sort of prepared to mount a seriously pro-life case and a serious case for overturning Roe that's not just about sort of the legal problems with it, or the constitutional problems with the decision, but about the sanctity of life and the evils of abortion. Um, and as you guys are sort of looking back at the last 50 years and the politics of the last 50 years and, and thinking about this moment right now, how would you answer that question? Do you think that the Republican Party is prepared to sort of mount that serious defense of life? Uh yeah, I would say I, I think I'm a lot more encouraged by what I've seen at the state level since I've been writing about this for the last few years. And I think um, that's going to be the most important thing, certainly post row, because, you know, most likely if the court does overturn Roe and Casey or, or undo a lot of them, it'll uh, send the decision back to each state, um, the policy debate, the legal debate back to each state. And so I think in pro-life states, especially, and I guess on the other side of the spectrum, pro-abortion states have certainly been doing the same thing. But uh, they've been trying, pro-life legislators have been trying for a long time to pass at least as protective laws of the unborn as they possibly could. And most of those, those laws have been struck down over the last 50 years. Um, only very marginal restrictions have been allowed to stay in place. Um, but they've definitely been trying. I haven't really seen a lack of effort. And especially in the last few years, that they've been ramping up those efforts. I think as as you say, we've been expecting um, Roe to be overturned and they're laying the groundwork for that. So I am encouraged by that. I'm encouraged by Certainly the kind of at the cultural level, what the pro-life movement's been doing with pregnancy resource centers for quite a long time since Roe to help women. So it's not just about, you know, making abortion illegal, which we have to do and we should do. It's about meeting that kind of demand for abortion, helping people feel like they have options other than abortion once it's not available anymore. Um, at the federal level, maybe Ryan could speak to that more. I, I think it'll be much more focused on the states than it should be, but there are things the Republican Party could and should be doing, I would say, better to prepare at the federal level. What do you yeah, I mean, I, I would say a couple couple of thoughts. Um, one is that this will finally make public uh, which Republicans only talk about abortion to get elected, and then um, you know inside of kind of the um, the back rooms are you know telling leadership or you know sometimes they are in positions of leadership where they're saying we're not going to move any of those icky social issues, right? So one of the most frustrating things. For me, the you know, past decade working in public policy in D.C. are the number of kind of like Republican prominent public officials who talk about various social issues to get elected, 
but then don't want to do anything legislatively about them. Um, once Roe's overturned, a pro-life politician can no longer just say, I'm against Roe v. Wade. I'm in favor of the Supreme Court overturning Roe v. Wade. Now they're actually going to have to put um, you know, the, the money where their, where their mouth is in terms of, all right, well, what legislative agenda do you have, um, both to prevent the lethal violence of abortion, to prohibit the lethal violence of abortion, but then also to assist um, mothers who are experiencing unplanned pregnancies, to, to assist families, uh, welcome children into the world. Um, I think there is something providential about uh, the timing of Dobbs. Um, if the court does the right thing in overturning Dobbs, I think we have a center-right movement that's probably more open to thinking about uh, family policy, paid family leave, child tax credits, things like this, um, than we ever have before. And so, um, you know, there'll, there'll be ways in which center-right politicians can both address the supply side, um, Planned Parenthood, defunding Planned Parenthood, prohibiting abortion as such, but also the demand side for abortion, right? Ha having various policies to support women. And Texas actually gives you a great example of this. Um, the media gave lots of attention to the Texas heartbeat bill. The media div didn't cover um, that Texas this year or guys last year um, increased, I believe it was $100 million, the amount of funding that they um, allocated to the Texas Alternatives to Abortion Act, right? And, and so here's Texas is saying, look, we're going to both prohibit abortion after six weeks after the heartbeat's detected, we're also going to be funding alternatives to abortion. We're going to be providing mothers with the material resources they need to choose life, something that the pro-abortion movement does not do. I mean, I, I hate that label pro-choice because at almost every step along the way, they're trying to get in the way of crisis pregnancy center, pregnancy resource centers, other uh, civil society groups that actually are helping women make the choice for life. I think this is going to be um, an opportunity, but also an obligation uh, for all of us um, to both um, uh, uh, prohibit the violence and support the mothers to, you know, the, 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 the most common poster that I saw last week at the March for Life was the Love Them Both poster from Live Action. Mm. Um, and I think that's exactly right what we need to be doing. Mm. Yeah, I was actually going to ask about that, but Ryan, you just provided a, a great sort of uh, breakdown of what's happening in the states and how they can sort of support women. There's a lot of chatter about, uh, you know, the what was the guy from Missouri last week who proposed? He thought he was like owning conservatives. Um, <laughs> yes, <about>? yes. <laughs> like men should pay child support when babies are in the womb. <laughs> it's just a, a novel concept. Um, we feel very owned. But the the question that I wanted to shift to then is the timing of Dobbs, it comes as um, technology has obviously progressed, but it also comes as the technology progressed with a left that from Ralph, North, Ralph Northam to Andrew Cuomo has actually gotten sort of on the policy level increasingly radical and sort of uh, reactionary, <laughs> if you can use that word, on this issue where the left is now taking abortion pills um, in front of the Supreme Court or on live TV, shouting their abortion, et cetera, et cetera. So I wonder how you guys expect uh, whatever happens in Dobbs, um, whichever direction it goes in, how do you expect this to play out in a climate where we are now so far from the left's position in Roe, um, from the sort of safe, legal, and rare approach to abortion that sort of typified Democrats and uh, at the time? Um, 
how does this play out when you have some of the country moving away from tolerance for abortion, especially late-term abortion and casual abortion, um, as the left is sort of digging its heels in even deeper? You know, at first, right after the court took this case, I was kind of nervous. You know, I was obviously glad that they were considering it. I'd be thrilled if they overturned Roe and Casey, of course. Um, but I was a lot more nervous at first, kind of about the political ramifications. And I was thinking, look, most of the country, um, you know, most people are more pro-life than Roe, certainly, but they're not necessarily where Ryan and I are. And, you know, what what might the fallout of this be? Democrats are going to use this in elections. Maybe it'll be successful. But the more that I've seen since then, the less I've thought that way. And, and I think what it is, is we know, and I've been writing for a long time, we don't see it in the mainstream media, but you know, those of us who cover this honestly and carefully know that most Americans don't actually agree with the status quo that we have on abortion policy right now. Most Americans would prefer to protect unborn children far more than Roe and Casey allow us to. Uh, and so I think what you'll see post Roe, if that is, you know, whether that comes this year or later, um, what you'll see is people kind of recoiling from what Democrats argue in the wake of Roe, right? You're not going to see Democrats by and large at the national level coming out and saying, well, we need some kind of, you know, compromise. Maybe we could vote for a 20 week uh, ban on abortion, but otherwise we want abortion to be legal, right? That's not something national Democrats have put themselves in a position to argue for. They're going to be saying, we're going to pass a bill right now to invalidate every pro-life law in every state across the country, right? That's the most recent bill they've passed on abortion. That's what they're going for. And I think most Americans will recoil from that in, in a way that Roe hasn't really made it an, an issue at the forefront because people just say, well, Roe is the law. And so I'll just kind of move on with my life. No, they're going to be paying attention to the law now and to policy in a way that they haven't been. And they're going to see exactly, as you pointed out, exactly how radical Democrats have become. And I think most Americans really are not there on abortion at all. I agree entirely. I think that's exactly right. Uh, I think when most people discover that Mississippi's abortion law is more progressive than every 40 different European countries. We, we cite the actual um, statistic in the book here. Um, once Roe is gone, I, I think it's going to be hard for the media to keep carrying water for the Democrats. Um, you're, you're right um, in saying that the left keeps moving more and more extreme, but that's the political elites on the left. That's, that's the kind of, you know, official organizations, the spokespeople, um, the special interest groups, it's not their rank and file voter. It's not the grassroots. It's not the soccer moms. It's not Joe the plumber. Um, you look at the public opinion polling on this and most of Americans are conflicted and they don't know that much about it. I mean, I think those two things you can say with great accuracy is that with the exception of kind of the hardcore pro-lifers, people like me and Zan and hardcore pro-abortion advocates, most people are low information on this. Uh, and they're somewhere in the middle. Uh, and so the Democrats, I think, are over their skis uh, in terms of where they come down on this. And a post-royal world will actually allow us to better um, uh, communicate what the reality of abortion is and why pro-life laws are the just thing to do. You write in the National Review op-ed in which you announced this this book. Um, you say, we chronicle the growing effort to glamorize abortion on TV and in movies, as well as the corporate culture that increasingly embraces and promotes abortion. That is an interesting point on both levels, both about the entertainment industry and the sort of uh, corporate culture level. Um, can you guys flesh that point out a little bit and maybe give us a preview of, of how you plan to write about it in the book? And I'll start with you, Alexandra. 
Sure. Yeah. I would just, one big example immediately comes to mind when, when we were doing some research for the chapter where we cover this, I came across a Washington post profile of a woman uh, who works for Planned Parenthood and her job title, I can't remember the, you know, the exact title, but her job is to go to Hollywood producers and to, you know, people making TV shows and movies and convince them to have abortion storylines and not only to, to include these storylines, but to make sure that they have, you know, the right uh, racial elements, that they have the right, uh, you know, that the stories are sometimes positive or, you know, make abortion look like a good thing, or they kind of depict the reality of abortion, how hard it is to get, uh, but never that abortion is a bad thing, right? This is her literal job at Planned Parenthood is to make this happen. They call it Planned Parenthood's woman in Hollywood. Um, and then we kind of chronicle not only how people like this exist in the abortion industry, how they know how central entertainment and kind of the things we watch are to changing people's hearts and minds on abortion, but also that it works, right? There are examples of it and you're big into, into culture and TV and stuff. Emily, you probably know the examples better than I do, but it's changed a lot over the last few years, the way abortion is depicted. And it's not all exactly the way Planned Parenthood would like it. um, But it's certainly becoming a lot more, um, you know, there's more favorable depictions than even 10 years ago. Yeah, absolutely. They've sort of, I'll I'll just quickly add before we turn to you, Ryan, they've sort of, Planned Parenthood has had a huge impact on that. I watched a Saturday Night Live skit uh, once or sketch once and immediately reached out to Planned Parenthood's uh, woman in Hollywood and never got a response back because it it really echoed the Planned Parent talking points so verbatim that you, I mean, it almost certainly had to have come from them or it had to have come in collaboration with them. And that just didn't used to be the case. You used to have shows like Friends, which actually really upset pro-abortion people because the woman who gets pregnant, um, you know, out of wedlock doesn't even consider abortion. Um, And that has, yeah, Planned Parenthood is really impacting the way that happens. Um, and, And Ryan, what are your thoughts on that issue? And then also what you guys sort of alluded to in the corporate culture question. Sure. I mean, let me just add one thing to what Alexander just said there. That that Washington Post story says that um, the Planned Parenthood, the, the official title was Director of Arts and Entertainment Engagement, um, <laughs> that they've advised more than 150 movies and TV shows uh, since they first started uh, that, that roll up Planned Parenthood. Um, so again, it's not happenstance. When you see more and more of this on TV and movies, it's not because a bunch of screenwriters thought this was a good idea. It's that they're, they're being lobbied by a special interest group. Um, and in the kind of politics side, we've also seen this, um, what started you know, with religious liberty, right? Think about the, the state of Indiana being boycotted by all those major corporations when Mike Pence signed the Indiana RIFRA. We're now seeing the same thing happen when governors sign pro-life laws. Um, you know, this happened in Georgia. Uh, this happened most recently with Texas. And so, you know, we document um, uh, some of the kind of examples of you know big business engaging in politics. I, I think is a way um, uh, that is actually detrimental to Republican self government. It's one thing to say, um, you know, we're going to support candidates with money. Right? People criticize dark money, things like this. It's another thing to say we're not actually going to engage directly in the democratic process. We're going to use kind of our oversized economic um, uh, uh, clout to play, place economic pressures on the state to enact our preferred public policy uh, preferences. Um, It's something that back, I I probably was five or six years ago, Mike Needham and I wrote an essay for the Federalist talking about how there's um, crony capitalism where, you know, the bigs, big business, big tech, um, get big government to rig the game in their favor. There's also something that we were calling kind of cultural cronyism in which big business and big tech use their outsized economic power 
to go around the political process to get the cultural values that they believe enshrined in law and policy. And, you know, the boycotting of Indiana over the religious freedom law, um, you know, they've done the same with various states when they've enacted good policies on transgender questions or doing the same now on abortion. To my mind, that actually is something new in American political history where uh, corporations will use their economic power to distort the political process in this way. Uh, and it's not surprising that we don't see any corporations uh, threatening that sort of economic boycott when states protect abortion, right? They only do it on, uh, against the pro-life side of this debate. Right, and on that note, I, I wanna sort of uh, end by asking both of you, as we think about the media, we think about the culture and sort of the gatekeepers in the entertainment industry and in corporations, um, we talked earlier about whether the Republican Party itself is ready for a post-real world, but I'm curious as to what you guys think about sort of our culture, because Ryan and Alexander, both of you talked about how the public has a different perception of what should be legal than the Democratic Party, certainly, um, even if it's also different from hardcore pro-lifers' idea of what should be legal and what should be illegal. But the media is also wildly out of touch with the public. They're, you know, in cahoots with Planned Parenthood and radical abortionists, corporate culture as well, um, exactly along the lines of what Ryan said and what you wrote about with uh, Mike Needham years ago. So how do you expect the culture to sort of continue grappling with this issue in whatever way uh, Dobbs goes? How do you expect the media and corporate America to uh, to grapple with the mounting sort of the public shifting perceptions on abortion um, as we kind of litigate in the the uh, kind of private sector as we talk about this amongst each other and as we think about it in the public sector with this this Dobbs decision, um, how do you guys expect when that decision comes down our culture to kind of grapple with it? Well, I guess I'll take the, I'll take a first stab at it. But, you guys are um, speechless, understandably so. Yeah, it's such a good question. <laughs> it's it's definitely it's a tricky question, but I think um, I'm I'm much more pessimistic about kind of the specific examples you mentioned, corporate America, the media, than I am about our kind of overall culture's ability to have this debate. And that's a big part of why we wrote the book because we want everybody who's interested in the question, but especially pro-lifers to be equipped with kind of all the facts, all the information, the arguments that they need to make a case, not only that, you know, as I said, not only that abortion harms the unborn child, but that it's bad for all of us, right? What could be a more convincing case against abortion than actually it's bad for you too? You know, you might say, okay, I'm pro-choice. I wouldn't have an abortion myself, but I kind of think in some cases women need them. It's actually bad for all of us, right? This is not a simple kind of easy solution for anybody. This is a, a bad thing for all of us. And I think it, people will be um, a lot more people than we might think will be open to that case, but I don't expect there to be a lot of help. And in fact, I expect there to be a lot of pushback from especially the media and also from corporate America. I'm probably a little bit less convinced than Ryan is that corporate America will always be like that. And I think there's a lot of profit motive in it, a lot of virtue signaling. Certainly there are some true believers, but I think if it were bad for their business, they wouldn't do it, right? That's why you see them Big companies threatened to pull out of Georgia, but not out of Texas. I kind of think there's some distinctions there. Um, but even so, I, I think the media will always be against us. And that's a big loss because what people read in the paper, what they see on TV really does change how they think. And so I think that's why um, why we really wanted to write a book like this, because people will need something other than uh, those resources to kind of get their bearings. 
I love that point about Georgia and Texas. Um, Ryan, what do you think about this? Um, I think the legacy media is just utterly corrupt. Um, and so um, I would not be surprised at all that however Dobbs has decided, they will skew it as the worst thing ever. The sky is falling, back alley abortions, blah, blah, blah. Right. And I just think we should expect that. Unfortunately, that is um, what we've come to expect. But I also think like the the nice thing about, you know, maybe the past decade or two uh, is that the number of alternatives to the mainstream media and to the legacy media, uh, things like the Federalists didn't exist. What was it a decade ago is when you guys, I mean, like the, the number of alternative uh, channels in which people are uh, getting access to the truth. Um, that's a sign of, uh, of hope uh, to me at least. Um, and I think the same thing is going to be true. I mean, I think of, you know, some of the stuff that Nate Fisher is doing with new founding and, you know, alternative, you know, businesses that don't hate traditional American values uh, I think there's actually a lot of opportunity right now um, to have conservatives, particularly social conservatives, think about what are both the um, media institutions, economic institutions, political institutions that are supposed to reflect our values. Uh, and if they don't, why do we keep patronizing them? Why do we keep relying on them? Why don't we uh, found alternative institutions, whether they be tech institutions, media institutions, uh, businesses, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, and I think, again, this is, you know, a providential aspect of when Dobbs um, is being decided is that, you know, these things are happening in tandem, um, that, you know, the, some of the realignment um, uh, organizations, some of the kind of um, uh, 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 chairs that are being re kind of a deck, a, a deck of cards that's being reshuffled. I'm, I'm struggling for the right metaphor here. <laughs> um, but I think, I think this is actually um, going to be a positive uh, for us in the long run. So look, when, when Dobbs comes out, expect uh, the traditional media to um, do what they normally do. But I think also expect that social conservatives in particular are probably more aware and therefore better prepared uh, for those realities than we have been during my lifetime. Both of your messages, I think, and, and your takes on this are not surprisingly optimistic, but I think like rightfully and reasonably optimistic. And that's so helpful as we kind of head into this new year um, with Dobbs literally on the docket. Um, the book is called Tearing Us Apart, How Abortion Harms Everything and Solves Nothing. You can pre-order it on Amazon now uh, it's for as long as it's there. Uh, you might remember Ryan's first book was suddenly banned by uh, Amazon or Ryan's book uh, When Harry Became Sally was suddenly banned by Amazon. So we'll see how long this one makes it. Uh, but thank you so much to both <laughs> of you for your time today. Thank, thank you. you. All right, we'll be sure to check back in with them uh, when the book is out and to keep you guys updated on its its plight on Amazon, of course. Um, you've been listening to another edition of the Federalist Radio Hour. I'm Emily Jashinsky, culture editor here at the Federalist. We will be back soon with more. Until then, be lovers of freedom and anxious for the fray.